We'll take your Bible and let's make our way to Matthew chapter 16. Let's continue our study of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. And we will pick up our study today in verse number 18. But we're going to read together verses 13 down through verse 28 as we did last week to set our context. This has been a well-known portion of Matthew for many of you. And familiarity can breed indifference. So let's consider again with fresh eyes and renewed desire as we come to the word. Let's consider the record that Matthew's provided through the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit given to us in verses 13 through 28. Let's read these verses together. You can follow along as I read them out loud. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? The Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Last Lord's Day, we studied the first part of this final section in Matthew chapter 16, and we closely examined the verses 13 through 17 and the interaction between, in particular, Peter and Christ, Jesus. In verses 13 through 17, we discovered that one's identification of Jesus identifies them. So the way in which there is an understanding about Jesus or what is understood and true about Jesus identifies that person. So one's perspective of Jesus from Nazareth has everything to do with one standing before God, one's identification 
This week, following closely on the heels of that discussion and connected directly to it in the first paragraph, we find, we find Jesus articulating values. And this, this comes as no surprise to us. We are all, I believe, familiar with Jesus' life and his ministry and his death. I don't know that we often think of the value system of Jesus when we speak of his ministry. You and I operate with value systems, right? We have a value system that dictates and connects directly to the way we live life. Presuppositions, that is what we believe to be true heading into any circumstance. Presuppositions develop priorities and priorities culminate in patterns. So in other words, you live the way you live because of what you prize. And what you prize has everything to do with what you believe to be true. This goes in any, any part of your life and in the whole of your life. What you make time for has everything to do with what you believe is most valuable. Right? We often say, I don't have time to do that. We all know that there is plenty of time to do what we want to do. Somehow, there's always time to have a nice dinner. Somehow, there's time to enjoy a bowl of ice cream. Somehow, there's time to make coffee in the morning. Somehow, there's time to do whatever it is that, that we want to do. And what we want to do is directly connected to what we prize and what we have as priority and value in our lives. Now, the dilemma that faces us as followers of Christ, and we're gathered this morning as followers of Christ. We've, we've gathered as Grace Church family in the name of Christ. So what confronts us this morning as we step back into Caesarea Philippi and into the teaching ministry and discipleship of Jesus is we are faced with his value system, with what he prizes, with what his priorities are. And we're confronted face to face, and I'm confronted face to face in Matthew 16 with my own priorities set against the priorities of Christ. The Word of God operates as a mirror to us. It's the law of liberty granting us a clear view of God's priority. And here we find Jesus presenting us with the opportunity to evaluate, to analyze the value system upon which we act against the value system of the one we call master. So, you see, there's no dilemma. If Jesus is just a theoretical person who has provided salvation, he's our fire insurance, he died on the cross, and therefore we live this life the way we want to, we get everything we can out of every moment, and then we go into eternity and we enjoy his blessing Good to have you. Don't worry about what you did in life. Um, it doesn't matter. You're here now and I've taken care of it. But, but there's something entirely different if coming to Christ by faith and believing what cannot be seen, that His righteousness is credited to our accounts through His substitutionary atonement at the cross. If that's the case, then we find in our New Testaments that He's called Lord. And see, that's where the dilemma happens. Because if he is master of our lives, then his value system should be clearly recognized in our priorities. You see that? 
And I'm concerned, and I have been concerned throughout this preparation for this text. That often, if the world around me looked to me to establish the value system of my master, there would be mass confusion about what is priority to Jesus. And so we come to Matthew 16 and we find this one central theme. Those who rightly identify Christ must share the values of Christ if they are to be recognized as followers of Christ. Those who rightly identify Christ must share the values of Christ if they're going to be recognized as followers of Christ. So what is it that distinguishes us as Christ's people? It's our connection to his priorities, to his value system. And in Matthew chapter 16, verses 18 down through verse 28, we find three primary values of Jesus, who is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the son of the living God, as Peter has confessed. Three Values of Jesus are unfolded for us in verses 18 through 28. Renee came out to the living room last night. I think she went and fed Adeline, came out to the living room. It was, I don't know what time, I think it was two o'clock in the morning. And she said, are you all right? And I said, I think I have a three hour sermon for tomorrow. Um, And it concerns me that we're going to be here a long time. There are three primary values. Let me give them to you. You'll know why this is such a lengthy, potentially lengthy discourse. We're going we're gonna to try to get through this this morning without doing injustice to the text. Number one, Jesus values the church. Jesus Christ values the church. Number two, Jesus Christ values the gospel. He values his church and he values his gospel. And thirdly, we'll find in the concluding paragraph of this section that Jesus Christ values his lordship. He values his church, he values his gospel, and he values his lordship. I believe as we unfold this section, we will find Christ clearly declaring what it is that is closest to his heart. What is it that is at the priority center that dictates his actions and his lifestyle. So let's begin. Let's get back into verse number 18, right in the middle of a paragraph, and let's find Jesus valuing his church. Jesus Christ values his church. Verse 18, we pick up with Jesus and Peter, and Peter has received revelation from heaven, from the Father. Peter has said truth. He has confessed the truth about Jesus because heaven has revealed something, right? And in verse 18, Jesus now begins revealing. Jesus says, now I'll tell you something. And here's the value system of Jesus. I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church. Jesus Christ values his church. We can't get one breath into verse 18 without everyone who is in any way familiar with the Bible knowing that we've run smack dab into one of the biggest problem passages in our New Testament. You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. 
And if you're a careful student, maybe you have a study Bible this morning, you probably already read your note in the study Bible. Um, Your study Bible is now standing in judgment over me. I feel its weight. This is indeed a problem passage because it's here that Rome has established papal succession. It is here that the Pope and his theology of the Roman Catholic Church is grounded in their doctrine. But we do not find a Pope here. We find no succession of papal infallibility or exclusive authority. But what we do find is Jesus relaying Peter to Peter the implications of Peter's confession granted by heaven itself. And Jesus addresses Peter and he says, Peter, which is Petra, which means rock, upon this rock, I'll build my church. Jesus uses a pun. He uses a word play. And he uses two different words for rock, but they sound the same. So he says, you are Petra, and upon this Petros, I will build my church. I have as a conviction in preaching to avoid use of foreign languages with you. So I don't use Greek words or Aramaic words or Hebrew words with you. But in this case, the pun is built upon the familiarity or the similarity of the pronunciation of those words. Peter's name is masculine, Petra. Petros, the word for rock, is feminine. Jesus is using a a wordplay to make clear that because of the primacy of Peter's confession, because of the first place which Peter occupies as the one who has spoken the truth on behalf of the disciples, who do y'all say that I am? Peter steps up and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, your rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. So this morning, I, I present to you Peter as the rock, though your study Bible may, at this point, you may be aware that your study Bible is disagreeing with me. Now, why, why is Peter the best understanding of what Jesus is identifying when he says, upon this rock? Some say that Jesus says, upon, you are Peter, and upon this, you are a stone, and upon this boulder, this, this bigger rock, I'm going to build my church, which some would interpret to be the confession that Peter's just made. Right? The confession is the rock. So you're Peter, and upon this big rock, that is what you just said, I'm going to build my church. Some would say the big rock is Christ. So he says, you're Peter, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Okay? And some within Protestant, evangelical, conservative theology would agree that Peter is the object who is identified as the rock. Let me, let me lay out just some guidelines for you to help you understand how I arrive at this conclusion and how our pastoral team arrives at this conclusion. First of all, be aware that there are difficult texts in your Bible where those who are trusted influences in Bible teaching will disagree with one another. So, Not every text is as clear as the next text. That should be a humbling effect as we come to the scriptures. There are those portions, and this happens to be one of them, that are difficult for us. Secondly, note that biblical metaphors stand in their context. Now, this is critical. If if you're already disconnecting, if you're checking out, if you're feeling like this is technical information, I think I'll 
I'll just put it on pause and I'll get back with him at the conclusion when we find out how this all applies to our lives. Stay with me. Because biblical metaphors have to be understood in their context. That is, biblical word pictures need to be taken in the context in which they're presented. Let me show you this. We won't have time to read all these texts, but let me, let me at least make you aware of this. Okay, D.A. Carson uh, has served us in providing uh, these passages and giving the clear inclination. Okay, In this passage, in Matthew chapter 18, 16, verse 18, Jesus says, I will build my church. Jesus is the builder of the church. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10, Paul is the builder as a master builder of the church. So the metaphor changes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, Jesus is the foundation upon which Paul is building. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is the builder. And the rock is the foundation upon which he's building. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, the apostles are the foundation And Jesus is the cornerstone that holds up the building. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Jesus is actually a part of the building. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul's the builder. Jesus is the foundation. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter is the foundation and Jesus is the builder. So these metaphors are not contradictory. The scriptures are not in confusion. It's just that each biblical metaphor must be taken in its context and understood within its sphere. Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18 and chapter 3 and verse 7. Jesus has the keys in Matthew chapter 16. Peter gets the keys. In John chapter 5, 9 verse 5, Jesus is the light of the world. Matthew chapter 5. You and I are the light of the world, right? We are the light of the world. The metaphors shift and they change and they move and therefore when we come to a biblical picture a word picture first line of priority is to take it in its context and i believe that if we come to matthew chapter 16 in its context without the corruption of the roman catholic church we would see the pun as petra petros peter rock but because of rome's deadly deception because of the error of the Roman Catholic Church and leading people to a false gospel that leads people to an eternity apart from Christ, we are very concerned not to share their position on Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. And we do not share their position because their position presents Peter as the first pope with a line of successors who bear infallibility, who bear exclusive authority who bear the name vicar of christ that is substitute of christ it's blasphemous and that's not what we find in matthew chapter 16 verse 18 rather what we see here is a metaphor within its context where jesus is the builder he is not the material or the foundation of the building he is presenting his place as the builder of the church so the natural reading leads to Peter as the rock upon which the church is founded. Now, how does that happen? Well, Acts tells us and presents to us the history of how that happened. Peter did not stop being the spokesman for the disciples in Matthew 16 in Caesarea Philippi. He went on to be the primary apostle. He was the spokesman for the apostolic authority in the foundation of the church. And in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, which says the church's foundation is the apostles and the prophets, Peter took primary place. 
He was the leader of the leaders. He was the first among equals. He was the spokesman until the the shift to the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts and the gospel going to the Gentiles. Peter does play the very role that Jesus says he would play. Now, Jesus could have used a different word if he didn't want to play on Peter's name. There is another Greek word that doesn't rhyme with Petra. That just simply means generic stones. He chose to use Petros, I believe, and I'm convinced because he was connecting the stone or the rock to Peter's name and his place as primary apostle. Now, how do, what other clues are there in the text? There's one other primary clue that gives away a little bit of where we're going in the future, but I think it's meaningful for your understanding and confidence that we are not drifting towards Rome this morning. Okay, so I want you to know that. Verse number 23, notice what your, your ESV, if you have one. If you have a New American Standard, you might have even a more careful translation in verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Now, your ESV, I trust, has a little number beside that or a letter, something that tells you to go to the margin. In my Bible, it has a little number five. If I go down to the bottom of the page and I look at number five, it says Greek. And then in italics, it says stumbling block. Let me give you the most literal translation of the word hindrance. Stumbling stone. You see, in just a few verses, Jesus will come back and he'll address Peter again as a rock. Only the first time was the rock based upon his confession given from heaven. Peter will be the first among equals who will be the foundation of the church upon which Christ will build his fame. The second rock that Peter is identified with is one that is a stumbling stone. It's a stumbling block to Jesus. Because he's not giving divine revelation. He's presenting human wisdom to the messianic king. So I'm convinced that, and I trust you are, and there's plenty to study. More ink has been spilled on this issue than probably any other, considering the implications of the rock. So this morning, our purpose is to understand that Jesus Christ values his church. And upon the rock of Peter, based upon his confession, As spokesman for the apostles, Jesus makes this one declaration. And it is the critical point of verse number 18. I will build my church. Jesus is committed to his church. The church, the word church is just so overused in our in our vernacular. I mean, my daughter, when we drive by the, when we drive by out on 201, she points over here and goes, that's church. Well, this isn't church. And you're not at church. Because church and what Christ says here is, is, is a word for assembly. It's a gathering. It's, it's people. You are the church gathered together today at Grace Church of the Valley. We are a local expression of the gathering of God's people, the assembly of Christ's people. So the church is a multi-ethnic Jew and Gentile, every tribe, tongue, and nation, people of Christ, gathered together for His namesake. And it is the primary place where Christ is working today. This is His value system, the church is his priority. 
Let's take just a moment to go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3, turn to the right in your New Testament into the letters. You'll see the letters to the Corinthians. They're longer. You're almost there. So right after 2 Corinthians, if you're new to your Bible, you'll find the letter to the Galatian church. In Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 25, Paul says, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The guardian being the Old Testament law in the Old Covenant of Israel. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Paul presents here the 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 diversity of the body of Christ, the the assembly of people that Christ has set as his priority and that he promises to build. is a diverse group of people. All distinctions are broken down within Christ's church. No longer are there distinctions between slave and free. No longer are there distinctions between male and female. No longer are there distinctions between barbarian and Scythian. I know you've been looking for Scythians in here and Noticing each other as barbarians. There's, there's no longer people groups. That's all done away because we are sons and daughters. Brought together. Through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the building work of Jesus in his primary place, which is his church. In this era of his redemptive work. Ephesians chapter 3, just a few pages over, presents this same reality Ephesians 3, verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, member of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages of God. Who created all things. So that through the church. Through the church. The manifold wisdom of God. Might now be made known to the rulers and authority. Authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose. That he has realized. In Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence. Through our faith in him. The marvelous mysterious plan of God. Unfolded and revealed through the words of Jesus to the Apostle Peter. Is that the church will be to the praise of his glorious grace. And he will not be thwarted. He will build his church. Jesus Christ values his church. He goes on in Matthew chapter 16. And tells Peter in verse number 18 that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. What is the number one what is the number one enemy of the church? Well, the gates of hell. Often this has kind of become Christian cliche uh, where we kind of talk about it as if we know what it is. <laughs> uh, gates of hell. What are the gates of hell? Jesus values his church and he will build his church and these gates of hell will not win over his church. They will not have the victory. 
The gates are the entranceway to hell. What is the entranceway to Hades? Death. Death is the entrance to hell. And the gates of hell will not swing open and win over the church. We spent our resurrection morning a few weeks ago recounting the implications of the resurrection on our lives. Here we find the grand implication. The gates of hell will not swallow the church. The church will fear no death because in death there will be life in Christ. Death will not prevail against the church. Jesus takes up the primary place of responsibility for the building of the church. This is liberating, brothers and sisters. We are a means to His end. And His end is to build His people. To gather people in from every corner so that those people from all those corners gathered together, living life together, loving one another, serving one another, speaking truth to one another, and an eternity living in His presence with one another will be to the praise of His grace. That's His promise. And death can't win against that. Jesus values the church. It's His. It's the primary place where He works. Does your life reveal His value system to the world around you? Are you committed to the same primacy of the people of God and the furtherance of the kingdom of God in the church? Verse 19 goes on. He takes Peter one step further and he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus makes one final response to Peter's confession and his identification of Jesus. With that confession comes keys to the kingdom. Peter, the disciples, and ultimately all who are granted such gospel understanding will bear authority as agents in dividing humanity, holders of keys of heaven and earth. Now this is, again, a place where our understanding of translation has to come into play. I trust that you have a good translation like the ESV in front of you because it will help you It will not leave you to wonder what in the world is going on here. Is heaven responding to what Peter says? And those who fall under Peter's lineage as those who confess the truth of Jesus as revealed from heaven. Do we then bear some ability to dictate what heaven does? Do we get to say to someone, you don't get to get into the kingdom? And God says, well, I gave them the keys and they locked it up to that person. No, the answer is no, we don't get that privilege, nor did Peter. And the answer is found in the verbs that are used. Again, I'm thankful for margin notes from the ESV. The Greek language has the ability to phrase verbs differently so that they carry a different um, uh, weight to them. And notice in verse 19, you have a note, I trust, in your margin. At the end of verse number 19, It says, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's a a number 
There's a number beside that, number three. And if we track down to the bottom of our page or the side of our page, we will see or shall have been bound, shall have been loosed. This is a this is a technical detail that has everything to do with how we understand this. What Peter receives as keys to the kingdom, which unlock the kingdom. When Jesus says, I'll give you the keys, it's based upon the confession that Peter has made with the gospel of the messianic mission of Jesus and the deity as the son of the living God. Peter now bears and all who will come after, who will confess truth about Christ in the gospel. We have the keys to the kingdom. That gospel will divide humanity. It will lock some out who will reject it and it will gain entrance for others who will receive it by faith. Whatever is bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven and will remain bound. What has been loosed on earth will be what has been loosed in heaven and will remain loosed in heaven. Why? Because heaven has the gospel. And now Peter has relayed that gospel as heaven has revealed it. Therefore, he receives the keys of the kingdom. The church will be responsible for delineating between unbelievers and believers. And the key that unlocks that distinction is the gospel. You say, I don't, I'm not convinced. Matthew chapter 18 is coming. Let's flip over just a page and look at Matthew chapter 18 where we find this same language. Verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That is, others who are involved. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Same verbs used shall have been shall have been. In other words, when the church is called upon to discipline those who by their lives reject the lordship of Jesus Christ. When that activity takes place and we now regard someone who was once considered a brother and sister as outside of the family of God, as a Gentile, as a tax collector. That distinction, if based upon the gospel, based upon the truths that are revealed from heaven to us, the power of the Spirit, it will match what heaven has already determined. We, as much as with Peter, we walk in the confession of truth about Christ, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we bear keys, we hold human, human authority directly from heaven to the church. The keys of the kingdom are presented to Peter, not because he is the Pope, but because he represents the first who has been granted the revelation of the person and mission of Jesus Christ. So Peter receives these keys and all who follow in his lineage Receive the same keys. Jesus is all about his church. He will build it. He will defend it. And he grants it authority. In his absence. In the power of the spirit. Based upon the gospel. And the revelation from heaven. Given to us. To divide between humanity. Those who are in the kingdom. And those who are outside of the kingdom. 
Our culture says that's unacceptable. You could never tell someone that they are outside of the kingdom. If they reject the proper identification and understanding of Jesus, the keys are in your hands and in my hands. It's a sobering reality. But it reveals to us that Jesus is all about his church. There are some implications from this first value of Jesus. He values his church. What are the implications? Jesus established Peter as the rock upon which the church was built. His successors are all those who rightly identify Jesus through the gift of divine revelation. Eyes opened, hearts opened, ears that receive the word, the gospel word. There is no papal authority granted here. Peter stands as the first of many who will be a part of the building of the church of Jesus Christ. Implication number two, Jesus owns the primary responsibility for growth in his church. We are only a means to his end. And we are even identified and given how we operate as a means. So this is why Grace Church of the Valley is so overly simplistic in what we're doing. If we really wanted to get clever to try to to try to build the church with our own wisdom, we would not want to do this. This doesn't work. Okay? This does not work. An hour of preaching, a few simple hymns, an hour of preaching. This doesn't work. This is not clever. This isn't human wisdom. This is how we have been commanded to be a means to His end. To gather together. To be built up together. And then to scatter with the gospel message. Trusting that when we plant seeds, we have accomplished faithful labor for our Lord, who is the builder of the church. Mark chapter 4 reminded this week as Garth and I were away. Pastor John preached from Mark chapter 4, which speaks of the farmer who plants his seed, goes to sleep, and when he gets up, there's something there. John's comment was, I sleep at night because we deliver the seed and we allow the Spirit of God to do with the seed what He will. Christ will build His church. The ultimate end does not rely upon us. We are simply a means to His building of His church. He gets all the glory, all the praise, and it's His wisdom that we must submit under. Implication number three, Jesus delegates and assumes active authority in his absence here on earth. The gospel church will divide, bind and loose those who have, whom heaven has divided. The assembled people of Christ must submit to his delegated authority, which is the church. Because they submit to him. In other words, the final implication of this is there are no renegade Christians who follow Christ but have nothing to do with the church. That just doesn't exist. I'm an invisible church guy. No, there is no such person. Jesus is building a gathered people for his name. It is the place in which he works. It is the place which bears his authority to divide, to bind and loose. It is the place we'll see in Matthew 18 where his authority is fleshed out even on those who profess to be his followers. Therefore, we as followers of Christ must be committed to this value system that is our Christ's value system. He's all about his church. 
we do not have the privilege or the right to be outside of or indifferent about the church. It is where Christ identifies himself. Therefore, it is where all who follow him identify themselves. Those who rightly identify Christ must share the values of Christ if they're to be recognized as the followers of Christ. So what do we see in verses number 18 and 19? Jesus Christ values the church. It's his idea. It's his primary place of work. Now, before we leave this section and before we move on to the next, notice verse 20. One of those verses that we kind of just want to run past. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's a tough verse. What? Why did he do this? Why are the disciples told they're standing there looking at Peter and Peter says, here's what's true about you, Lord. And the disciples, if, if I get any, any understanding of the disciples, they kind of just nod behind him like, yeah, we'll take one of those. Uh, you seem excited about that. So yeah, we're with Peter. We're with Peter. And in a few minutes, they're going to be like, we're not with Peter. Whoa, we don't have anything to do with Peter. Right now, they're looking at Peter. That's right. Look at Jesus. And Jesus says, don't tell anyone that I'm the Messiah. This is a secret. You keep it quiet. This doesn't go out of this room. This is between us. And it stays here. Now, why in the world would Jesus restrict the spread of of the news that he was the Messiah. I think the answer is found in the next paragraph. And it leads us to the second value of Jesus. Jesus values his church and Jesus values his gospel. His gospel. This is Jesus' gospel. And we find it in verse number 21. The declaration of the gospel is this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes. And be killed. And on the third day be raised. You see, the disciples are willing to follow the divinely revealed revelation of Peter about Jesus. But there is still confusion about what the Messiah's role will be. And until there is clarity about what the Messiah will accomplish. And how he will accomplish it. Jesus wants no spread of a confusing message about his messianic role. In other words, Jesus does not want the messianic mission to be encapsulated in free food, free healing, free release from demonic power. Those are not the watermarks of his ministry and his mission. You see, the disciples would be just like us. They would be like, he's the Messiah. And people say, what does that mean? He heals everyone. He gives everybody food. You can't believe what he does. Again, this week, uh, someone mentioned that he was handing out pickled fish that had never swam. I thought that was awesome. They never were in the water and he's giving them out as food. There's pickled fish. This is what the Messiah does. And it's true. He is fulfilling prophecy. But what was most Central to Jesus was the gospel. And the gospel is he goes to Jerusalem. He dies as a substitute and he's raised on the third day. He suffers. He's a suffering servant. Isaiah chapter 53. And until the disciples grasp that and until that became reality and in his ascension, his final words are go to the nations and make disciples. Tell everyone and anyone I am the Messiah because I've suffered. I've died. And I've been raised. So Jesus restricts because of this second value. 
He is all about His Gospel. Jesus transitions now to teaching the disciples that He has to go to Jerusalem. He must, in submission to His Father and because of the predetermined plan of the Father, as Peter will communicate to us in Acts chapter 2 at the day of Pentecost. Did the Jews kill Jesus? Yes. Did the Romans nail Him to that cross? Yes. Did the Father predetermine His death? Yes. To the glory of His grace for us. Following the cross and the empty tomb, all must hear of Him. His followers must go boldly, but until then, Jesus demands secrecy. Now, upon the revelation of Jesus, of the Gospel that He's all about, Peter quickly rushes in, again illustrating for us his foot-shaped mouth. And he says, with all of the human wisdom he could muster, verse 22, Peter takes Jesus aside. I mean, it just makes you cringe reading these words. I mean, you just feel the condescension, like, come on, can I talk to you for a minute? I need to talk to you about something. This isn't going to happen, Lord. I don't know what you got, you're telling us, but we're not going to let this take place. You see in verse 22, far be it from you, Lord. Let it never be. This shall never happen to you. You see, this is the confusion. Peter has an element of revelation. He has rightly identified Christ, which identifies him as being the recipient of heaven's revelation. But his understanding, the depth of his understanding of the Messiah's role and the gospel is is painfully shortcutted. And Jesus values his gospel. And so Jesus responds with these shocking words to Peter, who is the rock upon which he's building his church. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Peter now has taken on the very mission of Satan. Because he presents the alternative of the cross and suffering, and therefore the resurrection never happening. Jesus says, you're a stumbling stone to me, Peter. Why? Because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the temptation of Christ in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4. You remember these? Jesus is presented by Satan with a number of alternatives that shortcut the cross. Just do this and I'll give you that. As opposed to what? As opposed to living your life and doing the ministry that you have been given by your father and suffering at the hands of the elders and the scribes and the Pharisees and being nailed to a cross and being beaten and spit upon and hanging naked on a tree, unrecognizable to those who knew you, mocked by everyone who's there. Just trade that in. And Satan says, no problem. I'll give you what the father's promising you. And it's a lie. And Peter here takes up Satan's mission. And Jesus responds, you get behind me. You get out of the way. You're a, you're a stumbling block to me. You're not thinking God's thoughts. You're thinking man's thoughts. You see, man's thoughts will never end in this Messiah. He's not popular. He's not, he's not likable. He doesn't have your best life now. He doesn't give you possibilities in your thinking. He doesn't give you health and wealth and prosperity. 
He promises you righteousness through sacrificial death. He dies on a cross. He's humiliated. He doesn't open his mouth. This is the Messiah. This is our Lord. This is our Christ. And Peter faces him. And he faces the value of Christ. The value of Christ is the gospel. Jesus values the gospel. No shortcuts. No making him look better. No false promises. Just a clear implication. I will suffer, die, and be raised. That's the Messiah's mission. Glory to God that we know this Messiah. The question I have is, do I value the gospel the way Christ does? Seems kind of foolish, doesn't it, to, to talk this, to go through this text? I mean, it seems kind of elementary to consider the implications of Jesus valuing the gospel. Of course he values the gospel. It's his. He's the gospel. I mean, it's his life. Of course he values it. I think what, what Matthew presents to us, and Matthew's writing to the early church, he's recording these these conversations. And Matthew presents to us a very painful question. How well does the culture around us, how well does the society and the people in your job and your family members, how well do your kids and your grandkids understand the value system of Jesus by your life? How much does the valley know about the value of the gospel to Jesus' heart because of Grace Church? Do they see it? We're responsible. We're responsible to declare with clarity and passion and boldness, courage, the message of the gospel. But we were also saved to live the character of the gospel, which is the value system of our Christ. Are we on a mission for the kingdom? Or are we gathered here because we're hiding out for Jesus? Brothers, we, sisters, you're here too, brothers, sisters, we, we gather together to worship and to be edified. And then we scatter to take the message of good news to others. We gather to worship, to be edified, as has been outlined for us in Ephesians, New Testament, 1 Corinthians. And we scatter to extend the kingdom. Our love for one another is a blazing opportunity to make the value of the gospel known to others. Those who rightly identify Christ must share the values of Christ if they are to rec be recognized as the followers of Christ. My watch says that it's 1214. There's one final paragraph for us to consider. I don't want to blame the Holy Spirit for this decision. But I want to at least consider, we might have to come back and take up this paragraph again. But the third value that we see here, let's, let's at least take it in. Jesus Christ values his church. Jesus Christ values his gospel. And finally, Jesus Christ values his own lordship. His place as Lord. Verse number 24 picks up this final priority of Jesus. And Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. 
You see, this builds, this whole section builds as we see this value system of Jesus, which then bears direct connection to his actions, his instruction, to his lifestyle, to his worldview, to how he looks at what is happening around him, to even how he looks at the cross from the Garden of Gethsemane. When he sees the cup of the wrath of God and he submits himself finally to its punishment. Jesus values his lordship. And in verse 24, he declares it without mincing words. If anyone wants to be mine, come after me. Here are the direct implications. Self-denial, self-death, and pursuit of Christ. self Denial, deny himself. This is a self-disowning, a renouncing of oneself. There are no more rights. There is no more authority. You know, we are just prone as American Christians to just kind of let this seep into our system, this entitlement that we're actually, we have rights and, and hey, I have importance and I'm, I'm the, the ruler of my destiny and if I just believe it, I can do it. And all of that goes out the window with Christ. He gets all the lordship and he values it. He values it infinitely. He is worthy of it. He earned it. He bought it. And if we are to be known as his, it will be because he has brought us to the end of ourselves. Matthew 5, 3, in spiritual bankruptcy, we will look in faith to him. We will deny ourselves, our own righteousness, our own works, our own wisdom, our own agendas, our own priorities in life, our own goals and dreams and visions all become secondary to the place of lordship before Jesus Christ. This week, Garth and I had the experience of listening to a prayer for healing. It was I, I, We haven't talked about this since then, but a um, young pastor named Matt Chandler from Flower Mound, Texas, has been diagnosed with an aggressive brain tumor. They cut out the brain tumor, but they didn't get it all. He's in an unbelievable chemo regime right now. He's, I believe he's 32, 34, something like that. John Piper was there and prayed for his healing. And as he prayed for his healing, he prayed for God to change the course of the renegade cells and um, remove the cancer from his body and stop its spread. And he prayed specific prayer for healing and total healing. And then he came to the end of that and he just stopped and he paused and there was a dramatic pause. And he said, you are God. We submit. And in that prayer, I was reminded again of what it means to be a follower of Christ. It means I am not on any throne. He has that place all to himself. If he chooses trial and suffering to his name, be glory. He is the wise and good and sovereign king of my life. I'm in the kingdom of heaven where Christ reigns. If he chooses blessing and prosperity, praise be to God for the stewardship of those gifts granted for the glory of his name. All comes under him in self-denial. Take up his cross. Execution will be the way of discipleship. Don Carson again says death to self is not so much a prerequisite of discipleship to Jesus as a continuing characteristic of it. This isn't the get in the door stuff. This isn't. You one time you deny yourself and this one time you say, "Okay, I'm willing to die to myself. I'll take up my cross and then crucifixion, which is a gruesome picture here for the 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 disciples to hear. 
And, and this one time I'll follow Jesus and I'll, I'll do some formula and I'll pray some prayer and I'll, I'll get it right that one time and from there on out, I just live life. No, these are not prerequisites. These are the continuing patterns of life in discipleship. We deny ourselves because we have denied ourselves. We take up our cross daily because we have taken up our cross at that moment of regeneration. And we follow Him because we have followed Him in that moment of conversion. Exclusive claims are made on the lives of all disciples because Jesus values His Lordship. He's the master. He rules the life of his people. We are mere slaves and he is the slave owner. We do not argue. We do not talk back. We do not grumble about his plans and about his mission. We simply carry it out with gratitudes in our heart that through our slavery to Christ, we've been made free and we've been adopted as sons and daughters of the holy God of heaven. To whom we existed only as enemies before Christ died for us. Now, Jesus explains why he's valuing his lordship, why it's absolutely understandable for him to value his lordship. And he does that with three explanations. And we're going to unpack these next week when we come back together. There are three logical um, thought processes that he makes. They start with fours. And you see them right there. Verse 25, for whoever. Verse 26, for what will it profit? Verse 27, for the Son of Man is going to come. We'll come back to this. We'll see this final value of Jesus for his Lordship. And we'll explore those explanations next week. Let me leave you with this. The Lordship of your life rightly belongs to only one. Jesus, the Christ the Son of the living God. By way of application, if you're a note taker, I trust many of you are, jot these down for your consideration. Do you love and live the values of Christ? I, I mean, are, are these what mark you? Are you a church person? I don't mean a church goer. I mean, are you all about the gathering of God's people? The extension of it through your witness and the planting of seed. The life of it through your involvement with the people of God in your local assembly. Grace Church of the Valley. Is, is this what marks you? Are you a church man? Are you a church woman? Or is there something else that the culture around you, the people around you would know as your identity? Are you all about the gospel? The message? The bloody, embarrassing foolish message of the cross, which is the power of God unto salvation. Now, are you valuing in your life the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Or are you known as a complainer, a worrier? You see, complaining and worry would be those who are living outside of or without thought of the Lordship of Christ. Complaining is denying His wisdom in your daily events. Worry is rejecting trust and giving it to yourself for what takes place in your daily events. Both sin because they reject the Lordship of Christ. If you don't love and live the values of Christ, it is appropriate to consider whether or not you have ever bowed your heart in faith toward Christ.
I mean, if this is not what your life is about, let me say with love toward you what is true. You should be concerned about where you'll spend eternity. Because Christ's people take up Christ's values. If you're apart from Christ this morning and you'll turn away from your sin, if you'll repent, you'll turn away from your own religious righteousness, your own effort, your own accumulation of brownie points with God, if you'll turn your back on all of that, recognizing that it will never, ever get you one step closer to the righteous perfection that he demands, and you will turn and look by faith at the cross where Jesus, who lived in perfect obedience, died. You will turn in faith and believe that his righteousness is for you and his death is for you, bearing the wrath of God in your place. God promises mercy and grace to you and eternal life through Jesus Christ. If you do value those three values that we've seen this morning, press on. Many of you do. So many of you this morning, I'm looking at your faces and you are, you value and you love and you treasure what Christ treasures. Don't, don't rest. Don't stop don't lean back and say, it's been good. I've, I've made it this far. Press on. Excel still more. Love and live His values stronger and with more devotion and with grace-initiated passion this week like you've never lived them before. Identify sins that are creeping in and robbing you of those values. Set aside distractions. Continue to press forward so that more and more you look like Jesus to the people around you. To your brothers and sisters in Christ who will interact with you and to those who do not know Christ, who desperately need Christ, look like Him and speak boldly for Him. How well do unbelievers around you grasp Jesus from watching you live His values out? Those who rightly identify Christ must share the values of Christ if they are to be recognized as followers of Christ. Father, thank you for this study. It seems hurried and rushed, and I am painfully aware of my inability, my inadequacy to relay the potency of what is recorded by Matthew. But our sufficiency is not in ourselves, even in service for you and in reception of your word. So I rest and I pray for your spirit to use your word in your people and in those whom you would make your people. I pray that in the power that gets you the glory, that we would begin to mirror the value system of Jesus. We would be known as those who value His people gathered together in His church. Those who value the message about Him, the Gospel. And those who value and live in happy submission to His Lordship over our lives. I can't make us live this. And I can't even make myself live this. We strive after it because you are at work in us both to desire and to do what brings you pleasure. 
So use your word to shape our minds, to shape our priorities so that our patterns are directly connected to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. Father, we want Grace Church to be a place where in our little corner of your vineyard, your kingdom is extending. Whether that be through suffering, through persecution, through family rejection. Whatever the cost, we are willing to receive that cost. Knowing that our Savior has granted us salvation through an infinite sacrifice in our place. May we value and treasure what He values and treasures because it's His righteousness that's been granted to us by faith. And it's His cross work and empty tomb that has provided forgiveness and eternal life to us this morning. We're so grateful. We're so needy. Change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.